Would you turn again, please, to Psalm 51? Psalm 51. Last Sunday evening we heard from a psalm that was about when we're troubled in our thoughts. Being troubled in our thoughts. This time we're hearing from a psalm about when we're troubled by our sin. When we're troubled by our sin. If you never are, if your sin never troubles you, I'm sorry to be blunt, but there's something very wrong with you. If you just brush off sin easily, dismiss it, excuse it, There's something very dead about you. So how should you respond to when you've sinned? This psalm seems to me to be one of the best places to find out. It doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us a lot. One of the best places to find out how to respond to when you've sinned. Because here we have King David's response to when he'd sinned. He'd taken another man's wife, he'd committed adultery, he'd had the husband killed... He tried to cover up his crime, but now at last, maybe even a year later, he's responding rightly. And this psalm is his response. We're not going to go through all of it, there's too much here for us to manage in one evening. And I'm not, my aim isn't to teach the psalm, that might sound a strange thing to say. My aim isn't to teach the psalm, my aim isn't that you go away saying, oh that's great, I can understand Psalm 51. Now my aim is that we should all respond like this. That we should all pray like this when we have sinned. That's the aim. Not just that you understand it, but that we all do it. We respond like this when we sin. How should we respond? Let's get straight into it. First of all, on the basis of God's love. We start here, we respond on the basis of God's love. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David has sinned horribly, but he doesn't start there. He doesn't start with his sin. He starts with God. He starts with God's unfailing love and his great compassion. That's the basis for his prayer. Notice verse 1, according to your your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. He's praying for God to respond according to these two characteristics. He doesn't say according to how I've made up for my sin. He doesn't say according to... Me just having been caught out and I couldn't really quite help it. His prayer is all resting on this confidence in God's unfailing love and God's great compassion. How does he know about God's unfailing love and God's great compassion? Oh, because there he's got two phrases you repeatedly find in the Old Testament. David hasn't just got this vague idea that God is loving. He's picked up on something that is repeatedly there in the Old Testament. I've just seen David give me a funny look and I've realised why. It was the children's talk this morning, wasn't it? And it was Exodus 34 at the beginning of the service. And that was completely unplanned by me. There you go. Two examples of it is there repeatedly in the Old Testament. 
David hasn't just got a vague idea about God. He's coming on the basis of what God has said. And that is exactly how we must respond when we have sinned. It's right to be aware of your sin. It is right to be troubled by your sin. But you must start not by thinking about your sin, but by thinking about God, his unfailing love and his great compassion. You've got to be convinced of them, otherwise none of the rest of the response will be right. However much you may moan your sin, you'll get stuck there just in moaning your sin. None of the rest will be right if you don't start with God's unfailing love and great compassion. David was convinced by the Bible and we have more Bible than him. And praise God, we have the part of the Bible that tells us the record of God giving his son. Tells us the explanation of how that pays for our sin. Tells us the demonstration of God's own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why we're taking the Lord's Supper later. Why do we keep doing this same thing? Most people who take the Lord's Supper could tell you off by heart the gospel. Because we need again and again and again to convince ourselves of God's unfailing love and his great compassion. And being convinced of that enables you to, here's the second thing, be honest about your sin. How should you respond when you sin? On the basis of God's love, But on the basis of that, you can then be honest about your sin. This is verses 3 to 6. In verses 3 to 6, David piles on the descriptions of his sin. He doesn't hold back in saying what his sin is like. Now, I'm not going to go through those verses and we're not going to look at each phrase. I just am using it to point out what it means for our response to when we've sinned. And one of the things it means is this, name your sin. Call it what it is. Now, I don't know if they do anymore, but in previous generations, schoolboys would sometimes go scrumping. Do you know what scrumping is? I doubt they do it anymore, very much, because they can buy sweets from the shops instead. But scrumping was this, taking apples from other people's trees. And it sounds quite nice, doesn't it? And boyish and just a little bit of mischief when we call it scrumping. But if you called it stealing, well, that doesn't sound so good. But it's what it is, stealing. But we call it scrumping, sounds nicer. Adultery gets called an affair. Fornication gets called a one-night stand. Gossip gets called sharing some news. An angry temper gets called speaking my mind. I call a spade a spade. And so we have all these different names for sin. But we must be honest about our sin and call it what it is. Call it by its Bible name. And one of the reasons we must do that is because we must not excuse it. Here's David and he's committed adultery. And he says what he's done, but he doesn't say, but look here, Bathsheba was bathing just where I could see her. And I'm a red-blooded male, and maybe my wife was pregnant at the time, what more could you expect? And if he did say that, you would say, you slimy, squirming piece of work. 
But how often do we make excuses? Find excuses for our sin. How often do we theoretically admit our fault, but if people listen to what we're saying, 95% of it is why other someone else was in the wrong, and 5% of it was, well, okay, yes, I admit I'm wrong. We must name it. We must not excuse it. And we must be honest about what it shows of our heart. Again, I'm going through here things that David is saying in verses 3 to 6 without pointing them out specifically. You can read them in your own time. Be honest about what it shows of your heart. Imagine a glass of water sitting on a table, looking nice and clear and refreshing and inviting for you to drink it. And then someone nudges the table and the glass all clouds up with dirt because it had been lying unseen on the bottom of the glass. And that's what happens to us. Temptation comes and nudges us and the dirt lying at the bottom of our heart gets stirred up and maybe shown up. It's shown up what was there all along, lying on the bottom of your heart. And David is honest about it here. Verse 5, this, this wasn't some temporary aberration. This is what he was like. And we must be honest about it. Not just to ourselves, not just in our thoughts, but to God in our prayers. That's what David is doing here. I reckon it's put more clearly, actually, if you look at Psalm 32, and it's put more explicitly. We've got to be honest, not just in our thoughts to ourselves, but in our prayers to God. Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Is there anyone here and you are missing out on the joy you could have Because you're not being honest with yourself or with God about your sin. You're thinking maybe it will be easier to brush it under the carpet and pretend it didn't happen. Or call it another name and just quickly move on. And it may be easier, but you're missing out on joy that you could have. You're missing out because when we are honest about our sins, on the basis of God's love, then here's the third response. Is the third response. Then expect joy. This might sound a funny response to sin, but we can if we've, on the basis of God's love, we've been honest about our sin, then expect joy. This is verses 7 to 9. Verses 7 to 9 are this amazingly confident paragraph. This man's committed adultery and murdered someone, and yet he gives us this amazingly confident paragraph. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. No doubt about it. No ifs or buts. Now what's this hyssop? Well, hyssop was a plant and its branches and leaves were dipped in blood and sprinkled over a leper to make the leper ceremonially clean in Old Testament ritual. 
David is saying, the sacrificial system shows me there is a way that God can cleanse away my sin. Cleanse away all of my sin, so not a single speck remains. So that if those forensic experts at the police got out all their microscopes, they still couldn't find a single speck of my sin remaining. God has wiped it all away. We don't have that sacrificial system because we have the one sacrifice it was all pointing to. We have the one sacrifice that is complete. And so we can say, the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses me from all sin. And so we can have David's expectation in verse 8. Verse 8 may be better translated, you will make me hear joy and gladness. You will make the bones you have crushed rejoice. It's got that definiteness about it. Just like verse 7 is definite. Now, imagine a beggar sitting by the side of the road. His legs are shriveled. He's been unable to walk since birth. And picture him sitting outside a busy building and he's calling to passers-by, hoping that they will throw him a coin or two. And two men come past and he looks up hopefully. Maybe they'll throw him something. But they don't. They They say some strange words about someone called Jesus. And he finds himself on his feet and his shriveled legs have strength and he's leaping and he's dancing and he's praising God. And do you know where I got that story from? Acts chapter 3. But it's also a good picture of David. He's been a beggar. A beggar for God's mercy. That's what he's doing, begging for God's mercy. But he is then receiving such joy that, verse 8, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. The word there, rejoice, comes from the same word as for dance. Great picture. He's saying, you've crushed my bones as I felt my sin but I'm confident you'll remake my bones such that I'll dance for joy because my forgiveness is complete. He's gone from broken bones to dancing bones. You know, the Christian life is not supposed to be going around always feeling a little bit guilty. Going around always feeling a little bit of a failure. Going around always feeling a little bit miserable about our sin. I think we sometimes think of it as like that. We're always supposed to go around feeling a little bit miserable about our sin. No, you are not. The Christian life is supposed to be, when we sin, we feel it deeply. We feel it like crushed bones. But when we bring it to God in a Psalm 51 way, we feel like dancing. We're not a dancing sort of church, are we? But we feel like dancing. Because the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. But we don't leave it there. Because the aim of all this is not just us feeling better. The aim of it is us living better. So we move on from expecting joy to asking for change. Here's the fourth response to when we've sinned. Asking for change. This is verses 10 to 12. Now we come to things that we must ask for. And this is such an important prayer. Please listen to this, remembering the aim isn't just you go away saying, oh, that's good, I understand Psalm 51. The aim is that we do pray these things when we've sinned. 
So I'll read verse 10 to 12 again. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What does David ask for? First of all, create in me a pure heart. Did you know that the word create is used very rarely in the Bible? Straight away you think of Genesis chapter 1. But it actually doesn't appear very much in Genesis 1. Even there I think it's only twice. It's this rare word for things that only God can do. It's a rare word for God's power to make something that wasn't there before. David says, I need a pure heart and only you, God, can do it. But you might ask, why does David need this? I've puzzled about this because he already was a believer. He already was a child of God. I've taken a lot of comfort in this prayer because I've often felt the need to pray for a pure heart. I thought, I'm supposed to already have one. What's going on? What is the Christian's relationship to sin? Now, there are lots of different ideas about that. There's lots of wrong ideas. Some people think like this. Do you remember the kingdom of Israel after Solomon in the Old Testament? It was a split kingdom. Two kingdoms with two kings. Some people think of us like that. We're this split personality, partly ruled by God and partly ruled by sin. No, that's not our relationship to sin. Some people think of it like this. What about England in the Civil War? It wasn't clear who was going to rule. Because there are two powers, Parliament and King, fighting out for control. Not clear who's going to win and who's going to rule. No, that's not the Christian. It's not God and sin fighting out, not clear who's going to rule. It's more like this. We're like a country with an established ruler. A ruler who's got the throne and he rules, but the old ruler is still around. The old ruler isn't in charge, isn't going to get back in charge, but he's like a terrorist trying to get back in charge. Like a terrorist stirring up trouble because it wants power. Jesus is our Lord. Sin is defeated. Jesus is on the throne, but sin is still around and it's still trying to get control. There's still sin in our hearts. In other words, our desires, our attitudes, our thought life. And it shapes us. And it tries to get control of us. It's like that terrorist trying to get back on the throne. And David here prays, take it away. Take away this sin I still find in my heart. Purify my heart. Now, because that's what's going on, creating a pure heart in us will be a process. It won't just be a one-off thing that it's done and then on you go. It will be a process over time. Many people have heard of John Newton. Famous for being a slave trader. And then he became a Christian, gave up the slave trade, became an Anglican vicar and wrote that famous hymn, Amazing Grace. But it didn't quite happen like that. Because he actually carried on as a slave trader for a long time after he'd been converted. Shockingly, did terrible things to the slaves. He 
had to have his eyes open to how wrong his sin was. He had to be purified. He had to be changed. And you can read about some of that in another hymn of his, which is far less well known, hardly ever sung in churches, because it's a very difficult hymn. I would recommend, we've got loads of hymn books there at the back, take one home with you afterwards. Really do so, because there's a lot of good hymns. Some of them are unsingable, but still very profitable. And this is one of those. It's almost unsingable. The language is so old, the hymn is rather odd, but it's really good. Note-takers can note down, it's 698. 698, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. And then the hymn goes on to describe how painful that was. And how difficult it was. Now he thought to God, why on earth are you doing this to me? Oh, he's answering my prayer for a pure heart. This is a dangerous prayer to pray. It can be a troubling, a prayer that brings us trouble. But if you've got any spiritual life about you, surely you say, but Father, I want a pure heart. Please deal gently and kindly with me, but do what is needed to purify my heart. Now, because of that terrorist warfare, because of that remaining sin fighting for control, we tend to be unstable people. And so David prays next in verse 10, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Make me a stable person. So I'm not coming to church and desiring God and then going home and desiring sin. So I'm not feeling like I love God one moment and feeling like I love sin the next. Give me stability. Such an important thing to pray when we've sinned. And he prays all of this not in a laid-back sort of way, not in a, it would be nice if I would be a better person sort of way. He prays it with urgency. He prays it knowing he is in big danger if God doesn't give him this. How does he know that? What has David seen in his life that shows him how dangerous it is if God doesn't pull us back from our sin? Who was king before him? Saul. And Saul had started out so well. Not so long ago I was in 1 Samuel in my Bible reading. And because I knew how Saul ended up, it was quite a shock to be reminded again just how well Saul starts. He's so good to start with. And then he messes around with sin and he brushes it off and he makes excuses for it and he won't accept people's correction and God leaves him. And the Holy Spirit is taken away from him and he ends a broken, sad man. And David must have seen that. And so he prays here in verse 11, he's effectively praying, don't let that happen to me. Don't send me out from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I know I deserve that, but I need you. I know the Spirit is holy and I'm unholy, so what can he have to do with me? But that's precisely why I need him. Now, if there's anyone here thinking, yeah, okay, David, Old Testament, but if you're a Christian, everything's fine, you're safe. It might be a good thing to pray like this, but don't make it sound so urgent or like a necessity. If you are taking that complacent attitude, you have no right to the claim that you are in Christ and safe. 
Whereas if you have David's attitude of dependence on God, you have every right to feel safe in Christ. One more change to pray for, and it's in verse 12. We've already seen David expecting joy. Be good to say more about that, but we must move on to the second half of verse 12. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David goes beyond praying for a steadfast, reliable spirit. He wants a willing, eager spirit. And that's so important in the response to sin. I'll try and show you why. Can you complete this phrase? Nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah, nature abhors a vacuum. If something is empty, something's a vacuum, nothing in it, well, other things will flow into it. I'm not an engineer or a physicist, but I presume this is how a vacuum cleaner works. Others can tell me afterwards if I'm wrong. Nature abhors a vacuum. Something's got to come into it and fill it. Our will also abhors a vacuum. Something's got to flow into it and fill it. We can't just empty our will and our mind and our heart of desire to sin and then expect it to stay empty. We must fill it with desire to obey God and to please him and to serve him. And that's what David is praying for here. Grant me a willing spirit, a spirit that's willing and eager to serve you. And that will sustain me in the fight against sin. This is essential in our response to sin. Don't just focus negatively on putting off the sin. You've got to also pray positively for God to fill you with desire to serve, please and obey him. And let that fill you and push out the sin. Now, I haven't covered all of that paragraph, but remember, I'm not preaching this so you can go away saying, oh good, I understand all of that paragraph. I'm preaching it so you pray it when you've sinned. Will you do so? Now, this may have sounded all rather introspective and inward-focused. So, we have a last response to sin in verses 13 to 19, and it is, think of others. Don't stop with yourself. Think of others. I'm not going to go through all these verses, but just point out that here David thinks of his responsibilities to others. He's got a responsibility to teach others. That's verse 13. He's got a responsibility to praise God. That's verse 14 and 15. And he's got a responsibility to the church of God. That's verse 18 and 19. And he can't do any of them if he isn't responding to sin in this Psalm 51 way. Ian Campbell was a pastor of a church in Scotland and he had a brilliant mind and an engaging manner and good interpersonal skills and he was a sought-after preacher in conferences but he was leading a double life. He was carrying on in sin secretly Presumably thinking his abilities meant he could still manage to pastor and preach. But he did incalculable damage to people and to God's honour. And eventually, three or four years ago, his sin was exposed and he was disgraced. If you are going to teach others, if you are going to praise God, if you're going to do any good to the church of the Lord Jesus... You need to be responding when you sin in this Psalm 51 way. 
Nothing else will substitute for this. No matter what abilities you've got, no matter what your past record is, you need this Psalm 51 response when you sin. Notice David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And then he has confidence sinners will turn back to you. But only then, when he's responded to sin in this Psalm 51 way. Those of us who are elders of this church at the moment are considering how should we be training people to serve in the church in the future. Very important that we do so. But far more important is to have people who pray Psalm 51, respond like Psalm 51 when they sin. We need that sort of person serving in the church. Far more important than any training. Well, there's a lot of Psalm 51 I've missed out, but I'll say it yet again. Remember, my aim isn't for you to know all the psalm. My aim is that you and I respond like Psalm 51, by praying Psalm 51 when you sin. Will you do so?